Amen. So Thanksgiving's over. You guys survived. You guys full, I'm sure. Uh, but that also means that Christmas season is here. And uh, I had the, the privilege of hanging out with family over Thanksgiving. And um, already my family's talking Christmas. So I was hanging with my sister and my brother-in-law. And uh, Thanksgiving Day, they're strategizing what they're going to do on Black Friday shopping, what stores they're going to hit when to get what items because they know Christmas is coming. And like so many parents, they just want to get their kids gifts that they love. And we were talking about that and it got us reminiscing about how much it stinks as a kid when you have your heart set on one particular gift, but then you get something else. When you have these expectations to receive a certain gift, and those expectations are so trumped up, so built up in your own mind, and then you get something different. When you have expectations and they're so specific, and the anticipation for that gift is so intense, that when you do get something that might even be awesome, but it's different than what you were thinking, you're let down. In a way, that's the situation within uh, the Jewish world, the Jewish religious community, as the kingdom of God breaks into the world. Over 2,000 years ago, a kingdom broke into this world in a way that's just radically different than what anyone could have ever expected. The precious Son of God was born of a virgin in this little town called Bethlehem, in this tiny little unimpressive inn, and His name was Jesus. He's the eternal God. And in that humble setting, He was born a king and He came to establish a kingdom. But as we've seen throughout our study of Luke, that kingdom looks so starkly different than what anyone ever anticipated. In fact, today's text begins with the Pharisees asking Jesus about that kingdom. These religious leaders who, like that kid on Christmas who had all these false expectations, had their own set of faulty expectations for who the Messiah would be, what His coming would look like, what His kingdom would look like. And with those defective expectations in place, they enter into this conversation with Jesus about the kingdom. And our text begins as they ask Jesus a kingdom question. When will your kingdom come? And as Jesus makes clear in His answer, the kingdom is actually already here. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the passage begins with this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And in a way, we understand their question, right? After all, these Pharisees have these these expectations that are askew. Uh, Politically, their people have been dominated and overrun by the Roman Empire. They're waiting for God to liberate them in some grand fashion, overthrowing the Romans, establishing this era of peace for Israel. Religiously, these people are most likely looking for the Messiah and His reign to come in some big, observable, future, apocalyptic fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They're expecting this great conquering king like King David. Yet Matthew's Gospel 
immediately identifies and clarifies that this humble, lowly Jesus is that King David. He is that figure like King David who came to reign. But he came not as some military hero. He came as a suffering servant. And his kingdom didn't come to assert political dominance over the Romans. It came to claim victory over their real enemy of sin and death. So Jesus and his kingdom just did not meet their expectations. So they have their own set of assumptions about the kingdom, and then they ask Jesus when the kingdom is coming. And Jesus, as he has done so many times already in our study of Luke, completely dismantles those assumptions. And here he starts dismantling their expectations, their faulty understanding, by explaining how the kingdom is not coming. And Jesus says the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Look back at verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. So the Pharisees are not getting it. They're not thinking rightly about the kingdom. They should not be looking for some big, massive sign. They shouldn't be searching and seeking out something so they're able to say, look, over there, there's the kingdom, or here, this is it, here's the kingdom. Now why should they not be searching out some signs, seeking out some big observable thing? Because with Jesus' arrival, the kingdom is already here. Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, Jesus is here. God in flesh has lowered himself to walk among sinful men and women on this mission to save his people. And his person and his work are so tightly bound to the kingdom that his very presence there signals the arrival of the kingdom itself. And this is huge. In coming, Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus actually is the complete fulfillment of all of that Old Testament prophecy. So in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. This is what the Pharisees had been waiting for, and tragically, they're missing it. Just remember that that chunk of verses that just came prior to our text that Josh talked about. Jesus has just healed ten lepers. This just happened. And as God has inspired Luke to compose this narrative, this gospel, this exchange with the Pharisees comes right after it. So he's just healed ten people of this contagious disease, yet the Pharisees want signs of the kingdom. You see, Jesus has been doing things all along that evidence the inbreaking of the kingdom. So the Pharisees and everyone else of that day, for that matter, should be able to look back to the first advent and say, you know what, a baby was born in Bethlehem. He's said to be the Messiah. Let's celebrate the kingdom is here. They should be able to look back to John the Baptist who confessed Jesus as the coming king. Let's celebrate the kingdom is here. They should look be able to look back and see that Jesus cast out demons and He healed sick people and He gave the lame their legs and the blind their sight and He calmed storms at sea and He miraculously fed crowds of people, thousands of people. He taught powerfully. He preached effectively. He spoke of repentance. He forgave sin. He loved the marginalized. He even raised the dead. And their response ought to be the same as that Samaritan leper who in faith praised God and fell at the feet of Jesus giving thanks. 
But these Pharisees who witnessed the life-giving, grace-filled ministry of Jesus Christ firsthand didn't recognize that the kingdom of God, which is as real as this world we live in, was already here. It's as if you heard a big hurricane was coming. So you run outside and you're looking on the horizon. You're looking for some massive weather event on the horizon. Where is it? Can I see it? It's coming. It's supposed to hit. Where is it? And all along, it's, you know, it's raining harder all around you. And man, the wind's really picking up and it's getting gusty. And before you know it, you're in the midst of this thing and you don't even realize it because you're looking on the horizon for something else. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe like these Pharisees, you sit here and you're questioning, you're searching, you're looking for answers about life, death, God, eternity. Maybe you're doing the same thing now that they were doing then. Maybe you have these preconceived ideas about who Jesus should be and what His kingdom should look like. And maybe like those Pharisees, the very best thing you could ever do is just abandon those expectations, strip yourself from all of those preconceived ideas, and just be willing to see Him for who He truly is. Maybe you've heard about Jesus, but you've never come to know Him truly. Maybe you've explored religion, but you've never known relationship with the living God. Maybe like those Pharisees, you're looking and you're waiting for some signs, some big observable thing to point you in the direction of a meaningful life when all along Jesus has already come. And He's lived this perfect life. And He died on a cross and He was buried and He was raised and He reigns as King over all things, even now, right now, this moment. So that mixed up people like us can place faith in Him by grace and enter into the kingdom that he's already inaugurated. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tell us what God the Father does when a sinner repents of their sin and turns to Christ in faith. Those verses say this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me say that again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's amazing. Let those words just sit in your mind for a minute. If you're a Christian and life's been tough and your faith has been stagnant and you're just going through the motions, be encouraged, be reminded what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. If you if you've never trusted Jesus as Lord, know that this amazing promise is available to you through Jesus. That when you turn to Him in faith, the Father is so faithful to transfer you from this domain of darkness over to the kingdom of Christ where you will find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Truthfully, the Pharisees didn't need to look for the kingdom, ask about the kingdom, look for signs of the kingdom. They needed to respond to Jesus right then and there. And that is your need and that is my need. The way to be delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of Christ, is through trusting in Jesus as Lord. And Scripture reveals that these Pharisees, they dismissed, they rejected Jesus, and as a result, they totally missed the kingdom of God. 
And that same danger is very real for us. So know that if you look past Jesus, you too will miss the kingdom. Know that kingdom people look to Jesus, never past Him. So while Jesus teaches that His first coming brought in, ushered in the kingdom of God, uh, He goes on to share that yes, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is also still coming. And uh, that can be a tricky idea to wrap your mind around. So for lack of a better term, we can say that the kingdom comes in stages. And as we discussed, the kingdom has been initiated when Jesus first came. That's stage one, if you will. Yet the kingdom won't be fully realized until Christ returns, stage two. So we can say that the kingdom is both already and not yet. That the kingdom is both near and far. That the kingdom is both present and future. That the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. So while the kingdom has come with Jesus, while the kingdom is advancing in this world through the activity and the witness of the church, while that is a complete reality here and now, we haven't seen the full glory of God's kingdom. And we won't see the full glory of God's kingdom until Jesus returns. And if the kingdom of God is both already and not yet, the rest of our text, verses 22 all the way to the end, verse 37, answers two questions about the not yet dimension of the kingdom. And those two questions are these. What will that day be like when Jesus returns? And how do we anticipate that day now? Turn with me to Luke 17, 22, all the way to the end. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus is teaching. He's continuing on this discourse about the kingdom, only now it's being addressed to the disciples no longer the Pharisees, and now he's talking about his end-time return, no longer the presence of the kingdom here and now. And throughout these verses, Jesus uses this phrase, the day of the Son of Man, or the days of the Son of Man. We see it in verse 22, verse 24, verse 26, verse 30, verse 31. All of those are references to that day when Jesus will return and, and the kingdom will be fully realized. And one of the questions those verses answers is, what will that day be like 
Aren't you curious? Don't you want more info about that day? Well, Jesus tells us some important information about that day. First, we realize that the day Jesus returns will come suddenly. It'll be observable and it will be without warning. Look at verse 24 again. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in that day. Guys, Jesus' return is not going to be a secret. One of the reasons you don't need to be out searching for signs, overanalyzing every little detail that pops up in our world, is because when Christ comes, you're going to know about it. In fact, Jesus' return is compared to a lightning strike that lights up the sky. Think about that. Imagine, it's getting cold, so let's go to a warm place. Imagine it's summer, and it's really hot and humid, and you had a long day at work, and you you get home, and it's dark out, but you're just so ready to relax, so you go outside, maybe with a cup of coffee, and you're just sitting there enjoying the stillness, enjoying the quiet. And then all of a sudden, there is this loud crack of lightning that flashes on the horizon, and the whole sky lights up. You do not miss a lightning strike that lights up the whole sky. You cannot help but see it. Likewise, you will not miss it when Jesus returns, so stop following people that are pointing you to this thing and to that. When lightning hits, it's bright, it's evident, it's obvious, it's powerful, it's quick, it's sudden, it has this expansive effect. Similarly, when Jesus comes, you will not miss it. You'll know it. But Jesus makes it clear that that day is not going to come until he suffers and he's rejected and he dies. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, that day of my return is coming. That sudden day like like lightning, that's going to come. But first we need this day. First I have to suffer. First I have to be rejected. First I have to die. Because in my death and resurrection, I'm going to purchase my people. In my suffering, I'm going to endure the wrath of God on their behalf. That day has to happen before this day. But from our perspective, this day of suffering and rejection and death has already occurred. So the next phase of the redemptive plan is Jesus is going to return. So we know that Jesus' second coming is going to be sudden. It's going to be observable. It's going to come without warning. We're also told that that is going to be a day of judgment. Look at verses 26 to 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it'll be on. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The day of Jesus is compared to these two historic days of judgment. One of those days is the the days of Noah. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Noah, way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the first humans created in the image of God for the glory of God, uh, to serve God as His vice regents, as His representatives here on earth, fall into sin. And this is so momentously huge in the story of the Bible. Because when they sin, they introduce sin and death into all of creation, most notably into the human heart. 
So now all humans are born with this sin nature. We are totally depraved. We are born enemies of God. We are born far from God. So the world populates full of sinners, full full of wicked people. And we read this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the text goes on to say that human sin grieved God to his heart. So God looked down at human sinfulness and wickedness, and he was deeply, deeply grieved by it. And in his holy justice, he sends a flood to destroy the world. And hear this. This is a good act of just judgment. But it doesn't happen before God shows grace to Noah and his family. You see, there was nothing special about Noah. Noah was a sinner like everybody else. He was later deemed righteous because by faith he trusted God. But he was just as deserving. But God shows him grace and saves him and his whole family. The second day of comparison is the day of Lot. So since the days of Noah, the world has repopulated through Noah's lineage. Full of sinners again. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And he lives in this place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom is notoriously wicked. Um, Read some of those chapters in Genesis and you will get such a description of the wickedness that took place there. Uh, one One of the descriptions we find in Genesis chapter 18 verse 20 says that their sin was very grave. Pretty clear, pretty direct description of what was happening in Sodom. And in his wisdom, God decides, I'm going to destroy this wicked place. And this is justice. This is goodness. This is my holiness. But first, he shows grace to Lot and to his family. He says, I'm going to destroy this place. You guys, I'm showing you grace. Get out of there. Leave. Leave. Do not even look back. You're cutting ties with this wicked place. Do not even turn your head back as I destroy it. So they leave and God rains fire and sulfur down on Sodom and Gomorrah and just destroys everything and everybody. And what does Lot's wife do? She looks back and God turns her into a pillar of salt. So here's the point of the comparisons. In the days of Noah... In the days of Lot, people were just going about their everyday business, right? They were grinding through life. We're told that they're eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building, doing the regular stuff of life, all of it with no regard for God or for His holy standard. And God bears with their unfaithfulness for only so long before He judges them. And that judgment means destruction. Guys, we are told that the day of Christ's return is going to be like those days. This is no joke. When Christ returns, He's going to judge and destroy everyone who is still His enemy because of sin. One of the more sobering passages in the Bible, at least for me, is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. Which shows us that sinners will someday have to give an account To him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Catch that? Jesus not only has authority to judge, but he's ready to judge. And all of us, like those in the world that know his time, like the men and women of Sodom, deserve to be on the receiving end 
of God's judgment because we are so thoroughly loaded with sin. But God extends us grace through Jesus. He showed Noah grace. He showed Lot grace. And because of grace, there is a way of rescue. And the only way, the only way to escape judgment on that day is not through being good enough. It's not through being moral. It's not through living the perfect life or doing all the right things. It is through trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, understanding that He actually came and already was perfect on your behalf. That He did hang on the cross and took the wrath of God upon Himself already. He hung there as your substitute so that you wouldn't have to endure that if you trust Him. And it's easy for us now, uh, like those people in Lot's day, like those people in Noah's day, just to get busy with life. Just to go about the normal stuff. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, planting, building, doing all the normal daily grind sort of things. Yet we're totally unprepared to stand before a just judge on that day. So ask yourself, Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? And now knowing that Christ is going to return and that His return is going to mean judgment, that ought to transform and inform the way we spend our lives here on earth. And the first step of transformation is to look to Jesus in faith, never past Him. So Jesus answers this question what will the day of, that, of His return be like? We're told it's going to be sudden. It's going to be observable. It's going to come without warning. And it's going to be a day of judgment. But now as we read through the text, we realize He's, he's answering another question in there. How ought we here and now to anticipate that day? How do we live here and now knowing that this day is coming? That Christ already came. The kingdom is here. It's already been inaugurated. And it's coming one day to be fully consummated. And here we are in the middle. Where we can see, yes, the kingdom is here. The gospel's advancing. God is doing amazing things in this world all around us. Yet at the same time, we don't see the glory of, the full glory of God's kingdom. There's, there's still wickedness. There's still sin. I struggle. I see evil things happening all around me. How do we in this day and age anticipate the coming of Christ. The first thing Christ says is that we long for His return. Look at verse 22. And He said to His disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He tells His disciples, guys, after I'm risen and ascended, you're going to be living out your faith in this world that's persecuting you because of me. And you know what? A day is going to come when you are going to so desire that day. That day when I return to make all things right. You're going to long for it. You're going to want it. You're going to crave it. You're going to plead with me to come back. And that is good. That's appropriate. That's okay. He tells them in their generation, you know what? You guys, you're not going to see that day, but I'm coming. Don't be discouraged. I'm coming. Endure. I'm coming. Persevere. I'm coming. How badly do you need to hear that this morning? Christians, are any of you weary? Does anyone in this room, are any of you sick and tired of struggling with sin? Fighting that battle day in and day out? Anybody? Are any of you discouraged when you look out at the world and you see all these crazy, off-the-wall, terrible things happening? If so, Be encouraged to know 
that it's appropriate for you to long for Him to return. To long for that day when we will finally see the kingdom in all its glory and it won't include all the suffering and all the sin and all the evil. Be encouraged to know that it's so appropriate. We're not impatient. We endure, we persevere here and now, but we long for Him to return. We always put our current suffering, our current life, in the context of the big redemptive plan, knowing that your suffering here and now is temporary. And that you have a good King and He is going to return. And He's going to restore and He's going to rescue and He's going to reign for all time. So we keep our eyes on Christ. This is affirmation for you. This is needed encouragement to persevere knowing that Christ is coming. And He will make all things right when He does. We long for Jesus because kingdom people look to Jesus never past Him. So we anticipate the Lord's return by longing for Him. We're also told to anticipate that day by not following false teachers. Verse 23. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. These disciples, as Jesus knew, were going to encounter people that came along and said, you know what? The day of the Lord is going to come right then. It's going to look like that. It's coming right over there. And Jesus says, don't follow them. They're leading people astray. And we are so familiar with this phenomenon, aren't we? I mean, this is not, we're not strangers to this. In my short lifetime, I can just think back to so many people who have come up in the news or countless books that have been written claiming to know when Jesus is going to return. Just a couple of weeks ago, Josh and I were um, talking in the office and we were thinking about this one particular book that came out in the 80s. It's called 88 Reasons that Christ Will Return in 1988. And sounds completely ridiculous now, huh? I mean, it was ridiculous then, but it's really ridiculous now. Did you know that book sold between four and five million copies? Had people all over the place expecting Jesus to return in 1988? This stuff happens all the time. And Jesus is quick to warn us, guys, it's false, it's fake, it's counterfeit, it's harmful. Do not go and follow that stuff. Remember, since His second coming is going to be as observable as lightning in the sky, we don't need to run around chasing those people. We don't need to worry about missing Him. And yes, as a Christian, we long for His return, but we don't let that longing run away with us. We don't let that longing take us off the road of truth and take us down some wayward path instead. We don't fear that day as God's people. And we don't have any unhealthy fixation on looking and interpreting signs either. So as we anticipate that day, we long for Christ's return. We don't follow false teachers. We're also told to cling to Christ, not to this world. Verses 31 and 32. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So verse 31 is this uh, picture of not turning back. What did Lot's wife do? She turned back. We're not to do what she did. This is a picture of us not turning back. We don't cling to the world. We cling to Christ. We're ready to go with Him, leaving everything else behind at every, any moment. And that idea is connected to verse 32, which is one of the shortest verses in the whole Bible. Um, one of, this is one of my go-to verses as a kid in Sunday school. 
when you had to have a memory verse prepared. I would go to John 11.35, Jesus wept, or Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife, just because they're short. So you won't, you won't forget Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife. But man, in context, that verse is powerful. Let's remember her. She's set before us as this negative example. Lot's wife was unfaithful. She looked back at the city when God expressly told her not to look back at the city. It was hard for her to let go of the city. It was hard for her to let go of the trappings and the delights of the world. And she was destroyed for it. It's this timely reminder not to be so drawn in by everything this world offers to the point where you cannot let it go. It's this reminder to see the world as it truly is. It is a temporal stop full of fleeting things. So we steward everything that God has given us and we leverage everything God has given us and gifted us with for the sake of His glory here and now, but we always must be willing to leave it all to follow Jesus if He calls us to. And Jesus summarizes that idea in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. True and lasting life is only found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Even if it means that that relationship means that you're going to suffer and die here in this life, it means you're going to gain life eternally with Him. And on the contrary, if you are so fixated and you so prioritize your earthly life here and now and you're so, so consumed with your own comforts to the point where you, you have no time for Jesus and you don't prioritize Jesus and you reject Jesus because of it, you will lose life eternally. So Jesus has told us to anticipate this day by longing for Christ, by not following false teachers, by clinging to Him, not clinging to the world. And finally, Jesus instructs us to anticipate that day with urgency. Look at verses 34 and 35. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. There are two images in verse 34 uh, 34 and 35. One is an image of two people in bed. The other is of two women grinding grain together in a mill. And in both cases, one person's left, uh, one person is taken. And remember, the images appear in this context of judgment. So when Jesus returns, some are going to be saved by grace through faith, and others are going to justly be condemned because they rejected Jesus Christ. Just like in Lot's day. Just like in Noah's day. But the emphasis here is that God's judgment is going to come swift, so there is urgency in how we respond to this text. Christians in the room, we cannot take our gospel witness casually. We cannot take our gospel witness casually. That is our tendency. I am as as guilty as the next person. This was such a point of deep conviction for me as I prepared this sermon. We rarely, if ever, share our faith. Yet we swim in this ocean of lostness. We talk to people every day and walk by people every day and rub shoulders with people every day who are living and dying without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord. And the most loving thing we could ever do from our heart to God's heart is to share Jesus with them. And the most loving thing we could ever do from us to them is to share Jesus with them. Yet we don't do it. 
For this reason, our church prayer focus this year is everyone reach one. Imagine with me, dream with me for a moment if the culture of our church, if the DNA of our church was so saturated with people who actively and, 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 and passionately and boldly and confidently took the people that God has placed around you and you shared Jesus with them. I mean, if that were to happen over this year, who could even, who could even imagine what, what, what sort of reach this church would have in the city of Boston and beyond? So let me ask, how seriously are you taking the prayer focus? Are you praying? Are you asking God to give you the eyes of Christ for the lost? Are you asking God to break your heart for the lost the way Jesus has a broken heart for the lost? Are you, are, are, are you willing to sacrifice and get uncomfortable and put a little work in? Are you asking God to show you, Lord, where, where have you given me a sphere of influence? Who have you put around me already? Whose hearts are you preparing to, to, to hear the Gospel? Are you praying these things and are you opening your mouth and with your words telling these people about Jesus. Let's be urgent in our gospel witness knowing that the day is coming when Jesus will return and His kingdom will be fully realized and that will be a day of judgment. Let's be urgent because we know that most people around us are looking past Jesus, not to Him. Speaking of urgency, maybe you sit here today and you're just in an honest place of uncertainty. You don't know what to make of Jesus. You're figuring it out. That is so okay. And if that's you, just know that God has just told us that that day of judgment is coming. That day of kingdom consummation is coming. And we read this in verse 37. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Dr. Douglas Stewart points out that this is a proverbial saying. It's almost like the English idiom where there's smoke, there's fire. In other words, just as vultures gather around a dead body and their presence around a dead person shows just how certain and final the death really is, when judgment comes, it's going to be final, it's going to be visible, there will be no going back. So there is this urgent call to respond to Jesus. And just know that kingdom people look to Jesus, never past Him. So the kingdom is here, and yet the kingdom is coming. And the desperate call of Jesus' words here for each of us to respond to Him. So as you grapple with the reality of Jesus and His kingdom here and now, as well as the reality of Jesus and His impending return, it is important to know that kingdom people look to Jesus Never past him. Kingdom people look to Jesus, never past him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. And as scary as a text like this can be, we thank you for grace. We thank you for doing everything for us to make salvation possible. Your life and work, we never could have done it on our own. And we praise You, God, that You are a willing sacrifice, that You suffered and You died and You were raised. And God, praise You. Thank You for that. And I just pray that each of us would leave this building ready to respond to You. 
regardless of what's happening in our lives and in our heart and in circumstances around us, God, we need You. Show us specifically, each one of us, how we need You, why we need You, and God, give us such deep conviction to come to You, not to look past You, not to cling to this world, not to put our hope in anything else other than You, God. You are our hope today. Thank You for coming. Thank You for walking this earth. Thank You for enduring all that You endured. And thank You for Your promise to return. We long for that day, Lord Jesus. You are good. You are our King. We celebrate You. We worship You together. Take all the glory for Yourself. You deserve it, God. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen.